the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. And Daniel Freib. Hello. Hello, chaps. Um, another another week of off-season podcasting. I, I had a long drive yesterday. I listened to the podcast from last week. Um, very good. Very entertaining. Helped me pass an hour and a quarter. How long was your drive? Eight hours. Eight hours. So I listened to it six times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I listened to it six times just so I could just so I could make sure that I didn't miss any of the mistakes. Just so you could fully absorb this scurrilous Tom Pidcock rumor that I tried to yeah. tried to sp- spread and tried to send out into the ether and um, hasn't really got much traction. No, it hasn't. I mean, you did a good job of 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 managing expectations with that of of underselling it in a way. Unlike a certain member of our team several years ago when he announced that Garrett Thomas was. Uh, going to BMC and it was a done deal. This was a, a softer launch for this rumour, Daniel, which might be why it hasn't gained the traction. But it was a very interesting rumour, uh, joining all the dots. I, I like the I like the no comment from Andrew McQuaid. That was fantastically done. Uh, and there was a lot, actually. I mean, the, the, the Tim Kerrison departures, another significant bit of news from last week. Um, Any intel changes on that at Movie Star. Uh, not really, no. Um, I did. Uh, I, I I did um, pick up. The only thing I picked up on my holiday was uh, a sighting of Dave Brailsford in near Monaco, where he now lives, uh, climbing the Caldez very quickly indeed. He's moved to Monaco quite recently. Tim Kerrison lives in Monaco as well, but I was interested in the idea that he may pop up at Israel Startup Nation because I also wondered whether he might. Um, he might go in uh, to another sport. I mean, famously, he was on his way to um, to sign with English cricket, was it? It was certainly a cricket job that he was on his way to um, from swimming when he got a call from Dave Brailsford and people at Team Sky. So he's worked in swimming. He's worked in rowing as well, I think. He's worked in cycling. He may well fancy another sport. So it's a very hard act to follow this week with all that news last week. What have we got this week, Lionel? Well, Richard, in part one, we're going to talk about Alex Dowsett's hour record attempt in Mexico. I'm sure, like me, you stayed up to watch that last night. I mean, it's only 10 o'clock here in the UK, that, but uh, that's a late night for me these days. Um, the news is that he didn't break Victor Campanart's record of 55.089 kilometres. He did ride 54.555 kilometres and since the kind of resetting of the rules um, in around 2014 and which led to the rebirth in our record attempts, it's actually the second furthest attempt by a man. Further than the Bradley Wiggins record in 2015, which actually broke Alex Dowsett's own previous record, but not quite as 
uh, far as the recent Dan Bigham attempt, which of course was not ratified by the UCI. But we'll talk about the World Hour record in part one. In part two, we'll talk about the 2022 Giro d'Italia. The Hungarian Grande Partenza has been confirmed. No opening time trial, which was the original plan for 2020. Instead, there's a hilltop finish on day one and the time trial will be on the second day. So on paper, I think it looks more interesting than the original Hungarian plan, which of course was cancelled because of coronavirus in 2020 and in part three i'll talk about my own little holiday my weekend holiday to the koppenberg cross in belgium the rest of the news speaking of the giro on saturday there's a giro d'italia criterium in dubai where egan bernal filippo ganna peter sagan and elia viviani are all due to ride very similar styles of rider um there they're all going head to head in a 30 lap uh, criterium on a 2.1 kilometer circuit i'm not sure if that will be televised will it daniel might be able to watch it on the internet big stars there um but talking of elia viviani he is going back to ineos he rode for team sky when they were team sky of course between 2015 and 2017 then went to de Kerning, where he was very successful Less successful at Cofidis, had a bad season in 2020, didn't win a race, although obviously the season was truncated, wasn't it? Uh, He did get seven wins this year, but all in smaller races. But Viviani going back to Team Ineos. Omar Freyli, who's been at Cajaraval and Dimension Data before, having four seasons at Astana, is also going to Ineos as is Ben Turner from Trinity Racing. And as we mentioned last week, the rumour that Roger Hammond was on the verge of agreeing to become part of the management team, that has now been confirmed, and so he will be at Team Ineos next year. And Lionel, there was a fourth um, signing announced by Ineos last week. They sort of announced their new signings, or four new signings, in the style of, uh, well, a Giro d'Italia 2021 Giro d'Italia route presentation um, across... A single day, um, sort of interspersed throughout the day. But the fourth rider was the German under-23 national road race champion, um, Kim Heiduk. Now, last week, Lionel, we talked a bit about changing, possible changing emphasis, didn't we? Uh, well, Ineos Grenadiers and their sort of stage race um, prospects and we talked about Pitcock but I was uh, it struck me that those four signings they weren't necessarily in the sort of usual Ineos Grenadiers mould most of the time with Ineos's signings or their sort of recruitment campaign as a whole you would there was a very clear well grand tour sort of bias or emphasis to it and maybe those four I know it's only a small proportion of their roster for next year maybe that indicates that they are sort of broadening their focus and objectives slightly because you know there isn't the sort of template of the the Ineos Grenadiers you know mountain workhorse or the the sort of um, the identikit among those four really I mean Omar Friley would be the closest I suppose that's true, yeah. Um, on with the news, uh, Oleg Tinkoff, remember him? The owner of the Tinkoff team and then Saxa Bank. He had Alberto Contador, Peter Sagan on the team at various points. He was convicted of tax fraud in the US and has been given a suspended one-year jail sentence and a huge fine. Well, $250 million he's had to pay in unpaid taxes and on top of that, another $250 million in a fine. Uh, reports from the US put Tinkoff's wealth at about $2 billion, so um, probably had enough to cover 
Um, that This case centres on him falsely declaring his income around about 2013, 2014. Um, but yeah, a costly um, episode for Tinkoff there. Basically declared his earnings as around $200,000 in a year when he disposed of almost a billion pounds worth of property, if my reading of this uh, case is correct. Uh, well, that's certainly what the tax authorities in the US He's a naughty, think. naughty boy, isn't he? Indeed, $250 million or $500 million would pay for quite a big cycling team, wouldn't it? But um, probably Tinkoff may, uh, well, he may stick to just uh, trolling Jonathan Waters about wine from now on. I don't know. Well, by all accounts, um, he, uh, well, in spite of some real personal adversity, he's been suffering, or he, I'm not sure where he's at with his leukaemia, but he... Um, he was treated for leukaemia a couple of years ago, wasn't he? And I think he's making a recovery from that. But by all accounts, he's got richer and done relatively well financially and well until this this conviction um, since leaving cycling. That was what I read over, over the last few days. He did always say he'd be back, didn't he, to win the Tour de France. And he also, um, there were rumours, I think they were scarless rumours, that he was stepping in when Sky announced that they were pulling out at the end of... 2018 he uh, was it was rumored that Tinkoff had had contacted Dave Brailsford to, to to offer to take over the team um not sure if that was actually true but I'm, I'm quite surprised at the leniency of the sentence given the scale of the crime because in America especially it can be quite punitive um if you uh you know defraud the 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 authorities of that much that much money i'm surprised it's not a longer jail sentence perhaps his his health issues were taken into consideration indeed last week we talked a lot about quebec next hash and their search for a sponsor um, for the world tour team didn't mention that the quebec development squad will actually continue at continental level next season we also talked about the 22 italian track bikes which were said to be worth around 600,000 euros that had been stolen from um, the hotel where they were staying for the World Track Championships near Lille in northern France. The championships were in Roubaix, of course. They've been found, not on eBay, as I suggested, but in a Romanian anti-drug raid. So uh, those bikes will presumably be reunited with the Italian Federation. A few uh, other little snippets. Vincenzo Nibali, who is returning to Astana, of course, he is planning to ride all five monuments in 2022. The world champion Julian Alaphilippe says that he will switch his spring focus to the Ardennes races, specifically Liège-Bastogne-Liège, rather than trying to do the Tour of Flanders and Liège-Bastogne-Liège at full pelt. He thinks that the gap between them makes it difficult to be 100% for both races, so he's going to focus on the Ardennes. And next week, it's the Ghent 6. Mark Cavendish is riding it again with Ghent's home star, Ilio Kaiser. They'll be up against the world and Olympic Madison champions, Michael Merku and Lassie Norman Hansen. But on with the podcast, and in part one, we'll stick with the track and Alex Dowsett's World Hour record. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159.
Thanks very much indeed to Super Sapiens title sponsor to the Cycling Podcast for their support of the podcast. And I'm delighted to finally announce our competition winners. And um, we ran a competition during the Tour de France and the Vuelta and the Giro as well, in fact. And we did announce earlier three competition winners from the Giro. Um, we've uh, selected four winners from the entries we received during the Tour and the, the Vuelta. They will each receive three months worth of the Super Sapiens devices to monitor their uh, blood glucose levels and help them in whatever goals they are aiming for. And the four who we've selected all had quite different and, and interesting ambitions and, and reasons for wanting to try Super Sapiens. So we're very interested to hear from them about how they get on. But the winners who've now all um, received notification and in some cases have received their Super Sapiens devices are Nicola Hogan, um, Jane Lockett, who actually uh, um, entered the competition on behalf of her husband, Ed, Carl Kuma and Konstantin von Runsted. So well done to them. We were very taken by their um, submissions, their reasons for wanting to try Super Sapiens. There were lots of other good entries as well, and it was a very, very hard decision. We selected quite a long short list, and it was, it's been a long process to decide the winners, and apologies for the delay, but um, we're looking forward to hearing how Nicola, Ed, Carl, and Constantine get on with their Super Sapiens. Well done to all of them. Well, on with the this week's podcast and Alex Dowsett um last night had a go at the hour record he's held it before of course um and I read in some interviews before this attempt that there was still some lingering frustration that he hadn't got more out on that occasion that he could have made it harder for Bradley Wiggins who subsequently went for the record and, and broke it and I think this effort like from what I could tell was it was obviously about raising awareness of hemophilia condition that he suffered from from childhood but also about that unfinished business i suppose it was about emptying the tank and seeing what really what he could do um without without holding anything back um and uh, he did fall just short of the the record set by uh, victor campanarts a few years ago um but i think he's come out of this with a lot of credit and a lot of respect and admiration for the the charitable uh, aspect to it the the raising awareness of uh hemophilia and there was a very touching interview with his parents actually which was broadcast as part of the the show last night where they talked about him as a young child dealing with hemophilia and how at that time and i've spoken to him about this before you know it, they thought that sport was going to be out, out the question for him so it's quite remarkable that he has enjoyed a, a very successful career as a professional cyclist his mother talked about um cutting the shoulder pads out of her dresses and jackets remember shoulder pads were very fashionable in the days of dallas and dynasty back then and uh she talked about cutting those out her outfits in order to make knee pads for him to avoid the the bruising and the risk of of bleeding that could be so catastrophic for him as a hemophiliac so a very uh, you know a successful career a successful effort even if he did fall short of the record and uh it's a fascinating thing to watch isn't it lionel um it, i don't want to say slow motion but it's a very controlled effort and victor campanarts also spoke about how enjoyable the first sort of 15 20 minutes are when you're riding at a pace that at that point in the hour is quite sustainable and manageable and uh you know you don't you never it's not like any other event where you just it's a man slowly drowning you know you're watching him slowly struggling to maintain that that pace and uh 
it was certainly very obvious towards the end last night how much the effort was telling on Dowsett. Yeah, I mean, the speculation midway through when the, the, the time was because it was being expressed in terms of the the number of seconds down on the, on the the, the record or, or the, the the target pace he was um there's a sense that oh well maybe can pull that round in the last 15 or 20 minutes but i think that you know that's pretty difficult to do as we saw as the, as the the clock went further against Dowsett and and the gap opened up and then once it was sort of you know half a lap's distance and then edging up towards a lap's distance you know a, a lap being around about 16 and a bit seconds you know that's a that's a, a a big old gap to close and you know after an hour's riding to be only um you know a little over 500 meters down on Campanart's record um you know that's about as close as I think you can get without being you know actually on it on the pace um so you know yeah it was a it was a a really sort of brave attempt and and i think that the the one thing that i've taken from talking to a few people who who know alex well one being james millard who um used to be a, a british pro rider with the plowman craven team and, and knows alex well just how much dowsett has put together the team together with um chanel his partner um you know they have they have assembled everything coaching he's done all the logistics he's attractive all, all of the finance and sponsorship um part of it being from pfizer who manufacture the drugs um that hemophiliacs rely upon to uh you know to stay healthy and and live normal lives and i think yeah there is there is the overriding message but also on a sort of personal level you know putting to putting together the whole thing um you know applying for the visas for everybody getting the flights booked and uh you know it's been a, a, a marathon effort with the the hour of cycling at the end being almost uh, um certainly not an afterthought because of course you know he's trained very hard for it wouldn't have gone for it unless he thought he could do it um but you know so much more uh, leading up to that actual hour of cycling on the track that uh you know perhaps people didn't see or or appreciate but i think uh, i've certainly got an awareness of um, just how much has gone into it and I suppose the other sense is that the record was there it is in in touching distance um, you know he did come very very close uh, he obviously went further than, uh, than than the distance Wiggins went when he took Dowsett's record in the first place back in 2015 um, but I suppose there's the looming sense that Filippo Ganna has got his eyes on the hour record and perhaps there is a sense at the moment um, maybe misplaced I don't know but he does seem like the the one man most likely to perhaps you know kick the record into the long grass for a little bit you know he he, he looks built for it he's obviously um, you know a fantastic time trialist arguably the best time trialist in the world he's got the track craft he's uh, you know got medals on the track um, and you know it does feel like uh, this was an attempt by Dowsett just to make it that little bit harder for Filippo Ganna when he, um, I think we all expect him to make an attempt on it. When that will be, we don't know. But um, yeah, it's sort of a, a last chance saloon, I guess, for, for Dowsett to reclaim the record that he had held um, relatively brief, briefly a few years ago. I think it was a, a validation in a sense of Victor Campanazzi's record. It's always difficult to know in real terms how good these records are. I mean, probably the perspective is slightly skewed by the way Campanazzi's career has gone since he broke the hour record. He's taken his focus away from 
time trials and he's now the sort of guy who finishes between 15th and you know 30th place often in in time trials or he has been in the last year so you you kind of forget how good he was when he broke it he was beating people I think he won a time trial in Tirreno Adriatico where he beat well everyone um, Tom Dumoulin I think he beat Ghana I think he he beat Wout Van Aert and he really was the best around um, at that point and you know Dalsip he said line he went close I mean just to sort of put in perspective how close it had been um, or it was um, Campanert's record 55.089 kilometres now and if you if you imagine that was a time trial over that distance well Dowsett would have lost 35 seconds he would have finished 35 seconds down on on Campanart's you look at the best ever what they call the best ever human effort Tony Rominger's um, t- 55.089 291 in 1994 Dowsett would have been 49 seconds down if that had been a time trial and you know you think back to the the sort of time gaps we were used to seeing in the long time trials in the Tour de France I mean the last times the Tour de France had really long time trials 2012 the last one I think it was over 53 kilometers Wiggins beat Chris Froome who was second by a minute and 16 seconds and then you know, you go down to fifth place and it's two minutes, 25 seconds down. And Tony Martin in 2014, that was another long time trial, 54 kilometres. He beat Tom Dumoulin by one minute, 39 seconds. So, you know, in terms of long efforts, our around about our efforts to only finish 35 seconds down on the the, the, the gold standard um, is, is, a, is a damn good effort. Just a corrections corner there, uh, Daniel. Uh-oh. I'm not going to correct your maths. I'm going to trust your maths, despite your uh, record with the the, the Sivakov factor yeah, when it comes to shocking. calculating things. Also, the light years. Also, the light <laughs> oh, years yeah. comment. Yeah. Been a few a few a uh, emails too. have arrived on that. Yeah. Well. But the best human yeah. effort is not Rominger. It's Chris Boardman, isn't it? Fifty-six point three seven five at Manchester yes. Velodrome in September '96, when uh, in the old Superman style, which was subsequently banned as a position and a lot of the equipment banned as well now of course the monocoque aero frame and and even i think the wheels the road are not permitted anymore um but uh you know that i i think you're right the the campanarts record of of uh, 55.089 you know it's both close to boardman's you know absolute outright uh, technology assisted record of 56.375 but also you know light years away isn't it because as you say the the, the margins are you know they're both very close and you know gaping aren't they because of the type of effort it is as you were saying richard it's that just gradual sure about running out of years <laughs> yeah well that was uh you know I'm, I'm i'm just demonstrating that i know that you can express 1.6 kilometers or thereabouts as a fraction of a light year Uh, no i mean i think you're right though daniel that it has um you know brought kudos to to campanarts and his his our record at a time when he's moved on as a rider and is no longer one of the one of the top time trialists he's his focus has changed but it has um highlighted what a good record that is and there's nothing wrong at all with with riders going for a record and falling a bit short and that's that's It'd be boring if every time somebody stepped up, they broke the record. Um, you know, this only creates, I think, more interest in the event and in this particular challenge. And there are no guarantees with that. I at all. must say, I got the sense from Dowsett watching his videos, which is another element. Lionel, you you talked about how much he's managed to put together 
in terms of well, creating this production and you know there were were great great burdens um in terms of well everything he did he and his partner particularly had to organize but um, also some advantages in the sense that he was able to use you know pretty much exactly the equipment he wanted to to use but one of the the, the things he took on was uh, doc- documenting everything on his youtube channel and it was you know really well done um a lot of a lot of content about that and went into a great detail about things like equipment and you know the way he trained for the out record attempt but i did get the sense watching those videos that he was uh, well victor campanert said in advance of the attempt that he thought it was 50-50. Uh, I thought that in his heart of hearts, Dallas, it was maybe even a little bit more pessimistic than that. Well, it was interesting as well. I just mentioned the interview with his parents. His father said that he was nearing the end of his career. He's got another year, hasn't he, next year with Israel Startup Nation. I wonder whether whether that will be um, Dowsett's final year as a pro. We wait to hear. But congratulations to Alex Dowsett and congratulations to Lionel and me for getting through this segment without him doing his Alex Dowsett impression and me doing my Victor Campanart's impression. You've all been spared. <laughs> I think the Dowsett impression is... Uh exclusive for friends of the podcast isn't it am i am i right is it in a friends of the That's podcast you pay the big episodes? bucks yeah. for yeah you'll have to sign up at the cyclingpodcast.com and then work out which episode that features in because i'm certainly not drawing anyone's attention to it shoot uh, shoot that du peloton cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack please that's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Beer 52 the world's largest beer club Now Christmas is just round the corner. I know it's a few weeks away still, but it's about time to start planning for the festive period. And what better way to get ready for Christmas than by ordering a case of craft beers, either for yourself or for a friend or family member who appreciates uh, lots of different delightful craft beers. You can get a free case from Beer 52. And at the moment, if you order, you can get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers in a case. All you have to do is cover the postage costs of £5.95. And to do this, go to beer52.com slash cycle. That's beer52.com slash cycle. We'll put the details in the show notes. Now, I mentioned Beer 52 is a beer club and each month members get sent a case with a different theme. And usually that theme focuses on a particular part of the world. The most recent case I received, all the beers were from Croatian breweries. And it was a real eye opener for me because I just associated Croatia, I suppose, with lagery style beers. But the variety was delightful and surprising. And I found that to be the case every time a case of Beer 52 beers has arrived on the doorstep. Each case comes with a magazine and some snacks. And if you don't like dark beers or porters, which I tend not to, I choose the light option. So I'll only get light beers. You can pause or cancel your subscription anytime. And to sign up at the moment, just go to beer52.com slash cycle. Pay the £5.95 to get a case of free beers. And remember, you'll get two extra free beers this month. So that's 10 beers for the postage cost of £5.95. Cheers. Just before we move on to the Giro, Lionel did mention Friends of the Podcast, and of course, um, just released as the interview with Lionel, introducing Lionel Bernie, all two hours and eight minutes of it. Um, I could have listened to that, I guess, three and a half times or so on my journey, but I, I, I opted not to do that. Uh, Daniel, you had it, you had it um, lined up on your jukebox last week. Did you uh, manage to, have you managed to listen to that yet? No, saving it. 
I hope, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad the answer is no. Um, let's move no. on. Well, let's we look forward on. to your review. We look forward to your review, but it's it's getting great a great response, a fantastic reaction from people who've really um, related to it. I think I did see. I've been I have been enjoying the the comments, the reviews, all well, pretty much all sparkling. I think, um, but there was some comment line about this being. Def- well, Lionel's got a big family. Definitive proof. <laughs> definitive sort of um verification of your you know your credentials the ultimate englishman yeah baffling baffling maybe um i mean i was talking to all on zoom i was wearing a bowler hat um yeah (laughs) yeah maybe maybe that's the reference i don't know cross of saint george (laughs) fluttering in the in the background anyway uh sign up as a friend of the podcast at the cyclingpodcast.com eating a pork pie where you lying yeah well i would Uh, yeah i probably was back then yeah (laughs) <laughs> back then uh in the pork pie days anyway that's available friends of the podcast um lots more coming up for friends of the podcast as well maybe that should have been the subtitle and lionel Burney, the pork pie years um <laughs> setting up a the, the, setting uh, up a sequel if you want to sign up as a friend of the podcast the price is frozen at 15 pounds up to december the first um it will go up to twenty pounds from December the first. So if you if you're a new friend of the podcast and um, you sign up before December the first, you can do so for fifteen pounds. That gains you a year's access access to all the new episodes that we release over the next year, but also the very very sizable now back catalogue. The archive is all there for you. Renewals though will renew at the original price uh, or the fifteen pounds, oh. won't they? Ah, oh, what a so, Unbelievable! Yeah. We're giving these away giving away this content anyway um on with the giro so the giro this year there's no big reveal um you know we we all watched the tour de france presentation a few weeks ago um held to great fanfare in a packed auditorium um and and you know it really is a uh presentation of the entire route of the tour de france and and you get a sense that it's a it's a whole thing the giro is doing it in bits as if they're revealing the picture in fragments and we've so far had well the the grande partenza as you say um lionel in hungary it's funny because i i feel like we've already done it having done our giro um i feel like we've kind of done uh hungary already but we haven't of course and the stages the two first stages that'll start on the friday are very interesting i think the hilltop finish on friday's first road stage followed by uh, the nine kilometer time trial the following day i i sure that's i'm sure that's happened before and um, but i can't remember it happening if, if anybody remembers or knows when that's happened in a grand tour before please let us know um but what do you well what do you make daniel first of all of these first stages and of this method uh that jira's using to reveal the route in stages well i'd echo you rich the first stage in particular looks interesting this hilltop finish i mean in the blurb that came out from rcs the jira organizers yesterday they were calling it a sprint stage it looks to me as though we might not get uh well certainly not a bunch sprint it's more if primos roglic were minded to do the giro, giro d'italia it's it's ripe for roglification uh it's about four kilometer climb 
up to this place, intriguing place called Visegrad on the Danube. There's a castle which the race will climb up to. Um, did you know about Visegrad, the Visegrad 4? I did a bit of research on this yesterday. And the Visegrad 4, basically Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic and Slovakia, they were, um, and they sort of got together after the fall of communism, these four countries, and they formed the Visegrad 4. And that where this happened, this sort of congress was at, was in the castle in Visegrad um, and this was some sort of alliance to protect each other's or um, support each other politically and culturally and this was a sort of nod to a, uh, an agreement between more or less the same countries it was Bohemia back then but in the 14th century also this sort of um, very important meeting that happened in uh, in the castle in Visegrad so I, I've seen some of the pictures of the castle itself and the location looks pretty spectacular it looks a little bit like um Lina, you'll be able to help me out here what's the the river that the, they climb up from in fleshwell on is it the Meuse? yeah that's right daniel the river Meuse uh goes through or past hui that's right and they take uh, in the Mudahui, it's a right turn isn't it onto the um in fleshwell it's a right turn onto the Mudahui. and um, here there'll be Going along the Danube and then climbing up to the castle of Visegrad. So that's going to be really interesting. And then the following day, the nine kilometre, or well, nine point something kilometre time trial, which you chaps, well, you read a simulation of that last year, didn't you? Um, in R Giro. Did indeed. I can confirm it was tough. <laughs> with, little, <laughs> with a little kicker to finish that as well quite a considerable kicker at the finish actually uh, on the on the simulation we did yeah um but it will be interesting that won't it with the not having the time trial on the opening day but still having a time trial as part of the the opening weekend like you say richard i'm sure this sort of thing has happened in the grand tours before but i can't remember it off the top of my head i mean it used to be fairly common for the tour de france to have a team time trial perhaps on the second day back in the day of split stages where they'd have a morning stage and an afternoon stage maybe a team time trial in the morning and then a road stage in the afternoon or the other way around but yeah just mixing it up and um, making it slightly different it will inject a bit of life into the time trial as far as the GC goes I think rather than just having the, the, the you know the stage winner automatically taking the pink jersey if the if there are splits on the first stage on the the run up to the finish and time gaps uh, it could make that um that time trial the not prologue time trial um, really interesting and add an extra dimension to it yeah it adds a lot of interest to that that time trial because we'll have our calculators out working out you know who's going to take the pink jersey but also of course there will be there will be a rider in the pink jersey there will be a, a race leader who will go off last and I, I think all of that as well will make that time trial far more interesting than had it been the the opener um so looking forward to that another, another thing chaps i noticed yesterday doing a bit of reading about um, hungary and um what's well what the start is likely to be like the grande partenza it should more or less coincide because the date hasn't been set exactly with um a general election in Hungary and that's part of the world where the where the politics have generated where they've grabbed 
a lot of people's attention elsewhere in Europe over the last few years because they've got a pretty far right leader in Orban, the leader there. And um, well, yeah, he's frequently in the news in the headlines for what's fairly, fairly unpalatable views about um, the LGBT rights and 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 also um, Hungary's position vis-a-vis um, the EU. And yeah, that will be interesting. But what about this? Uh business of unveiling the route in stages i mean as you said earlier uh, before we started recording daniel we a lot of the uh, route has been pieced together online by uh, super sleuths who have gathered information and, and more or less put the whole jira route together so those who are minded to search it out will will know more or less what's in store but they're unveiling the stages basically over the course of a week, aren't they? And um, I mean, this is a little Giro's, bit at a time. This is the Giro's grid start moment, isn't it? I mean, I must admit, I, I you know, I don't want to repeat myself, and 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 uh, I mean, I just don't seek out the rumours until the the tour route is announced or the Giro route, in this case, is announced. I like to, I like to, I like to see it un- be unfolded in front of me, and 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 just you know, build the anticipation. Oh, it's going here, it's going there. Um, I suppose the only way that they could have announced it uh, in stages with a bit more intrigue, perhaps like an advent calendar, do it over three weeks, one stage per day with a with a sort of social media fanfare, um, might have had a bit more impact or um, than, than, than doing it in blocks. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It seems to rob it of being able to, you know, get the map and, and look at it and see the whole thing um, as a, a sum of its parts which is what a grand tour is it kind of in isolation doesn't really mean anything to me no, until you I, see the whole thing set out i believe there's a sort of ulterior reason for this happening for this decision having been taken and that is something to do with tv rights and and the the deal with rise so the state television um, network in Italy for the next few years um, not having been firmed up yet so there was a question mark about how or when um, or by whom the presentation could be broadcast and consequently they've decided to do it all really using their own channels and so- social media but this reflects something we've talked about and we've all noticed over the last few years which is the Giro's um, well it's sort of keenness to embrace new markets and an Anglophile market and uh, a more of a sort of 21st century tech savvy market using things like social media sometimes it's worked sometimes it's come across frankly as, as being a bit desperate and a bit bit of an erosion of some of the things we love about the Giro you know um, last year the the cartographer the guy who'd been drawing maps for the Giro did draw maps for the Giro um, for decades Cesare Sangalli died or he died in the last few months and and you know even when he'd stopped working for the Giro his legacy was continued with these fantastic these beautiful maps that the Giro has always produced and um, the ones they're currently producing I would suggest are not nearly as as easy on the eye and um, yeah the Giro is always is always, it seems to me, stuck in limbo between kind of embracing the future and and um, sort of leveraging its past, which is a, a, what a lot of us cherish about the Giro. And, and as regards the presentation, I mean, I, like probably you guys as well, have very fond memories of some, well, in my case, I suppose, Giro presentations of the past, which were 
you know, I've attended some in, you know, big famous theatres, venues in, in Milan and in particular, and there'd be sort of a guest of honour who would help to unveil the stages. And often, you know, in, in Rai TV's case, there would be there would be little reportages from, you know, mountaintop finishes in, you know, in the dead of, of sort of winter. And you'd, be, you'd have people like Claudio Chiapucci riding up this deserted climb in somewhere in Campania in the south of Italy. And, you know, he would be sort of introducing what was going to be one of the, the high points of the coming year's Giro to the audience. And, you know, these were, from my point of view, maybe if I watched them back now, they'd seem a bit naff. But from my point of view at the time, there were these great sort of televisual occasions and um you know the way the grande partenza has been announced and the way these other stages are going to be announced this this week seems to me a bit of a far cry from from that unfortunately and you know even if social media is robbing the organizers of some of the the suspense and intrigue and mystery around the the route there's still when the tour de france comes to reveal the the route in its entirety there's still magic in that in seeing the whole thing joined together um and there are some stages that are you know perhaps quite a hard sell you know a, a, a flat 250 kilometer stage of the kind that might be won by dylan grinovigan for example um but the the as part of the whole it doesn't it doesn't really matter and it, i think it is a shame to to break it up like that um but we we go i mean it, it will be it will be fascinating. We 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 knew to expect um, Hungary as the the venue for the start, and it will be it will be a fascinating few days there. It's also interesting that it's a country. Well, they've got riders now, and one of their riders, Attila Valta, had a, had the pink jersey, of course, last year. But it's not a country with a great cycling history, and we covered this in our Giro. And there are other countries in the in the area um you know slovenia now and um, but poland as well who you think one day might i uh, a start of a grand tour um it's it's kind of surprising that hungary hungary is first of, of those yeah i should countries. have mentioned did i mention that they were poland were one of the visegrad four so or are one of the visegrad four hungary poland czech republic and slovakia and you mentioned the cartographer uh daniel sorry to change the subject here a little bit but i'm going back to last week's episode you mentioned cesare benedetti last week um having not finished the Italian Road Race Championship, one of the few races, or maybe the only race he didn't finish this year, that must have been just before he changed to become a pole. And I wonder what would have happened had he won the Italian National Championship and then become a pole? Good question. Would he have been able to become... Maybe that's why he pulled out. He was worried about winning it. (laughs) Back to the Giro, though. Back to the Giro. We, We go from Hungary... Uh, down to Sicily. That, that uh, reminds me actually, Rich, just to, as you say that, I'm just thinking, what, didn't Andrei Chmiel ride for five different nations in the course of his career? Moldova, Ukraine, Russia, Belgium, and I think there was one other, and the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, but we, we, we go to, to Sicily, which is similar to 2018 when the Giro started in, in Israel and, and then um, picked up in Sicily. That, that, that necessitates a, a rest day early on. Um, as we'll have at the tour this year as well. But um, what can we expect, Daniel? Do you know over the over the next uh, few days? Initially, the Sicilian stages, and as we head up Italy. Well, this is another unfortunate facet of route presentations. Now that whoever is minded to search out the rumours and the 
whether there are Twitter feeds that are almost dedicated to really unwrapping the Christmas presents before Christmas morning. And we, we pretty much know what the route is going to be. And I'm just sort of looking at the, the rumoured route now. Um, some of the, the highlights, there's a return to Blockhouse uh, midway through the race. So the Blockhouse is the climb made famous really by a couple of Giri featuring Eddie Merckx in the 1960s and 70s. But we're not, we're not going to go to the the summit in 2022, it will be, there'll be a finish at the Rifugio Mamarosa, which is near the top, but not quite at the top. Um, and Rich, there's going to be, well, there'll be a big stage in the, in the Dolomites, as we expect, which will probably be the penultimate stage and maybe the decisive stage. There's going to be an ascent of the Mortirolo at some point. We don't know whether it's going to be from the hard side or the, the slightly more benign side. And um, it, looks, it looks a fairly traditional route with Alps, Dolomites, um, some hilly stages in central Italy and um, and a finale in Verona, a finish in Verona and possibly a time trial. We've seen that a few times. Well, we saw the very famous time trial in 1984 when Francesco Moser beat Laurent Fignon in the time trial to Verona. We saw it 2010 as well when Ivan Bassa won, when Carapaz won a couple of years ago. So, yeah, um, that's what we, we talked, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago about Grand Tours finishing in, well, outside or away from maybe the, their most traditional destination, which in the Giro's case in, is Milan, but we've had a few finishes in Verona. And we, we sort of agreed that we quite liked that, didn't we? The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science in Sport for their continued support of the Cycling Podcast and all our spin-off shows. Um, if you want 25% off all your Science in Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. I've just S-I-S-C-P-25. written that down. I've, I've just written that down because I actually need some Science in Sport products. I'm going to use that. Okay. What was it again, Rich? SIS? Just... Just Teeth. rewind 15 seconds, Daniel, and then you'll hear it. SIS CP25. I've actually written it down. Lionel's taste test will return next week. I, I've, I recently ordered some science support products um, here in France, Daniel, so I can confirm that having them delivered in the EU is not a problem at all. Um, and yeah, I took a, a big consignment to see me through the winter months. Um I mentioned that Science of Sport support all our um, spin-off shows. One of those is Explore, and it has returned for a mini-series throughout November. I think we're going to have four episodes. This first one sees Lionel and I tackle the pavé of Pirate Bay, and it also covers my week in the Veneto region riding the gravel there um, as part of Filippo Pozzato's week of racing and riding riding the gravel and doing the grand fondo so that's all in riding the dreamland riding the dreamland yeah 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 that's the tagline and uh, next week it'll be mark bowman's audio diary from gb juro and the week after that will be adam bowie's diary riding the king alfred's way adam is one of our producers and that's a remarkable story that he tells about his own journey that he's been on the last year or so so um really great listen and given that he's one of our producers, it's probably one of the best recorded episodes we've ever produced. It sounds great. 
he knows what he's doing. Um, it sounds excellent. So uh, do tune into that in a couple of weeks. Um, we're we're introducing a new feature now, aren't we? Uh, we're calling this show and tell. It's kind of this is Daniel's idea. She's stolen it from somewhere else. I've stolen um, it from the Rich Roll podcast. Okay, and and it, but it also kind of ties in with uh, you know Lionel's the Lionel special, which is a lot about your formative years, Lionel, growing up and developing a love for football, cycling. So th- this is a bit like you know being back at school and coming in after the holidays and telling us what you've been up to. What have you been up to in your holidays, well, Lionel? Well, it is more what I'd got up to at the weekend rather than show and tell, because I haven't actually got anything to show um, from my weekend in Belgium. I went off to Belgium to the Koppenberg Cross, but I combined it with another of my interests, which is football. Um, don't all switch off in droves. There is actually a cycling link, because I went to the match between Zulter de Wadigam and Genk, and it, the final score ended up, Zulta Wadigan 2, Genk 6. Uh, so lots of goals Who in the game. Who were the scorers, please, uh, Lionel? The, the scorers were were all listed on the internet. I don't know off the top of my head who all the scorers were. I didn't recognise many of the players. Um, couldn't identify anyone who'd played in England, for example, that I'd seen before. Uh, Genk are going well, or they're, they're rather they're in the Europa League. They're actually playing West Ham Do United they play in purple? Why not? They play in blue. They're a, they're okay. a merger between two clubs, actually. Um, Winterschlag and Watershy merged in, I think, the late 80s or maybe the early 90s. And there was some dispute, I think, about... It wasn't a terribly popular merger, but there are two teams in a town the size of Genk. And uh, one played in red and black stripes, the other played in yellow. So they settled on blue as a sort of compromise Is this, is this show and tell feature just an attempt to sneak in football by the back door? Is it going to be, it, is it going to be golf with Daniel next uh, week? Ho, ho, ho. No, um, well, the cycling link is that Zolta Wadigan play in the Regenbogstadion. It's got a sponsor's name now, but the original name is the Regenbogstadion, which means Rainbow Stadium. And it was built for the 1957 World Cycling Road Race Championships, won by Rick Van Steenbergen on the track. Obviously, no velodrome, no track inside the stadium now, but uh, a a little link there. And uh, the Grand Prix E3 finishes right next door, um, doesn't it? So, yeah, uh, right in the heart of um, West Flanders, this is uh, cycling territory. You see all the signs for Brakel and Udenard and Hellersbergen. And anyway, I went to the Koppenberg Cross, which was held on Monday, a public holiday in Belgium, All Saints Day. So big crowd of people out. Um, the second big cyclocross race in as many days because there'd been a World Cup event uh, elsewhere in Belgium the day before. And uh, although it isn't a World Cup event, it was the first round of the X20 Bad Cameras Trophy Series, which is a kind of uh, second tier level of uh, races for cyclocross. And of course, it takes place on the Koppenberg Climb, famous from the Tour of Flanders. Everybody will know it. It's one of the steepest climbs that they tackle in the Tour of Flanders. It's where Jesper Skibby came to grief many years ago uh, in an edition of the Tour of Flanders and his bike was run over by the the lead commissaire's car or the race director's car. And the, the race is basically a full gas sprint into the bottom of the climb, up the climb, and then you know, snaking through the adjacent field and popping out not quite at the bottom of the climb but sort of halfway up and then climbing up again um and it was everything that belgian cyclocross um you know appeals to me really a big crowd of people in a muddy field uh, queuing for the beer tent as they were i wasn't because I, w- I was driving home afterwards but i did have some frites and mayonnaise and while i was there i spoke to sven nice 
uh, a nine-time winner of the Koppenberg Cross. Um, he's won it more times than anyone else. Uh, the, the, the event was actually founded in 1988 and a women's race was added in 2002. But Sven Nice, who dominated cyclocross in Belgium for many years, uh, is now working for Belgian TV. And of course, his son, Thibaut, is a rider, was on the podium in the under-23 race. But with... Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert having gone head to head against each other so often in recent years in cyclocross and now having mostly transferred all of those skills to the, the road. Um, they are not racing on in cyclocross at the moment. And I wanted to sort of take the temperature of where cyclocross stands at the moment. So I thought Sven Nice would be the man to ask. Well, Sven, here we are in Koppenberg, a race you won many times in your career with uh, Wout van Aert and Matthew van der Poel, such big stars on the road now. How is cyclocross in terms of its profile at the moment? What sort of place is the sport in at the moment? It's on a really high level. Um, and the whole cycling scene is watching cyclocross for the moment because a lot of cyclocross riders are doing really well on the road. Also the young guys now. And um, yeah, it's a discipline where you can learn all the skills, explosivity, the power, the intensity of, of one hour full uh, racing and, and use your technique and, and all those things together makes that you can be also a really good road rider. So teams are interested now in bringing also athletes to their teams uh, coming out of cyclocross. So it's, it's an important step for us. And um, yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty interesting to see. Do you think then we should be really watching the under-23 level because there's some riders in there who already have some results on the road? Yeah, yeah. for example, my own son. He was uh, the European champion uh, in Italy last uh, August. So um, I think a lot of riders, not only in the, in the men's category, but also in the girls' category, doing a, a perfect combination. For example, Blanca Vaz, she was fourth at the Olympics mountain bike. She done, uh, I think, a podium or fourth place in Europeans under 23 on the road. Yeah, and now she's winning also uh, yesterday uh, a World Cup. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see that, uh, that you can combine all those disciplines. Uh, but you need to be a complete athlete, otherwise it's not possible to win here, for example, in, uh, on the Koppenberg, because it's a really hard race. I mean, thinking back to your time, lots of people talked about the way you dominated cyclocross for so long. Why didn't you cross over to the road? And then Van, Aert, Van der Poel, Tom Pidcock as well, you know, they seem to have bridged that gap. Is that because their style of racing suits the way road racing is now or in a way has what they've done in cyclocross just transferred across that explosivity into climbs that one hour effort at such a high level i mean how can you explain it i think it was not the moment to be uh, to be an athlete that combines all those things uh, racing on the road was uh, it was, was, was not the really um, nicest moment to race on the road. Uh, if you see what, what, what happened with all those athletes. And for me, I, would, uh, I, I could use my technique, I could use my power in cyclocross. And I knew that uh, if I would be also a really good road rider, uh, I need to uh, drop a lot of uh, cyclocross races. And in my mind, I was a cyclocross rider. I want to race from the 1st of September until the last of February. I, I, um, I try to not only do good for myself but also for the sport and let it grow and I think now the younger generation um, they, they can use that that the sport uh, growed and, and, and teams were not ready also to 
to, to give riders the opportunity to combine. If you were a road rider, you need to race from this, from February until uh, the end of August. And now they can say, okay, no, you can race a few months and then recover and then go to cyclocross and uh, things are a little bit more easy than, than, uh, than 15, 20 years ago. And lastly, I mean, having the likes of Van Aert, Van Der Poel at these races and at the World Cups obviously increased the profile of those events. Do you think we'll ever see them back in cyclocross or do you think it's too hard to combine a full classic season, doing the Grand Tours, aiming for the World Championships and doing cyclocross deep into the, into the winter and through the winter? I think the difficulty is the Tour de France because riding in spring classics, combining with cyclocross, that's okay. And also the end of the season and, and doing, for example, World Championships, maybe the Vuelta a few weeks. But also in that middle section where the, 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 the Tour de France is, there is no recovery anymore. So, and then you need to drop a lot of cyclocross races because otherwise the spring classics are coming really quick again. And, and um, it's all, all human beings that need to recover also after a while. And that's what you see now. I think uh, in the past you saw them in the end of November, maybe half of November, but now we're gonna see them later and later because yeah, they raced until uh, half of September, maybe at the end of September. And, uh, they need to recover, so I understand, but they have the passion for cyclocross and they are going, they are going to come back, but maybe only uh, the important month of January, go to World Championships and then recover again for the Spring Classics. And very lastly, who should we be looking out for? Because, I mean, Ellie Isabit does so well in the cyclocross races, but is not perhaps uh, going to cross over. But the, the next Van Aert, the next Van Der Poel, who are they going to be? If you had to pick two or three names... Um, it's not gonna gonna be one guy who is riding in this peloton. I think the the guy who is coming the closest uh, when you talk about combining is Quinten Hermans. Um, but then it needs to come from the younger generation. For example, the world champion Pim Ronaar, maybe Thibaut Nes uh, can do that. But uh, for example, Eli and also Ton Aerts, Eli Iserbit. Um, they're not going to do uh, the combination of, of both disciplines and, and riding on a really, really high level on the road. Um, but that's okay. Uh, they are 100% professional in cyclocross and they do really well and they're riding on a really high level. Well, Sven Nice there answering the key question when we can expect to see Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert back in cyclocross events. And he seemed to think uh, in January, but it looks like there's been a bit of news coming out of the Netherlands and Belgium that they will both be back a little bit before that Vanderpool set to return in mid-December and build up towards the World Championships Wout van Aert perhaps a little bit later they may not face off against each other until after Christmas but um, as Nice said there the, the big problem isn't necessarily combining cyclocross and, and a classic season or cyclocross and an end of season campaign. It's it's the fact that the Tour de France sort of, um, you know, sits in the middle of the year. And well, if they wanted to do everything, basically they wouldn't have any time off at all. So a, a, a slightly truncated cyclocross season for the big two, uh, but it'd be good to see them back in the mud. Lionel, did you introduce yourself to Sven Nice as the founder of his... UK fan was it UK fan club or English fan club it was the UK branch of the the fan club uh, no funnily enough I didn't do that um I thought you know that was so long ago now and also um I, I wasn't sure that he'd be give any more than a sort of <laughs> Belgian shrug and an oh 
Good. Any <laughs> any any sense beyond that line or at the weekend of how business is for cyclocross? Because um, I remember in in our short lived venture venture into the world of cyclocross podcasting a couple of years ago, it was very clear how personality dependent cyclocross was um you know in terms of it's also kind of unique among cycling disciplines in that a huge part of the business model is gate receipts effectively you know how much money is taken on the in the turnstiles as it were and it was clear then that if Wout van Aert or Mathieu van der Poel was on the on the start list then the gate receipts would be a lot healthier. Everyone would make a lot more money and business would, would boom. Um, and obviously with COVID as well, having affected cyclocross in the last couple of years, I just wondered, you know, have you got a sense of, of how things were going? Well, I mean, I think at its peak, the Coppenberg Cross had had sort of ten or 15,000 spectators in. It was difficult to know um, exactly how many people were in, but it, it wasn't as rammed as, uh, as I've um, seen at other events in Belgium but there was still a great atmosphere and um, but I think you're right it's the big stars that draw in um, the big crowds and you know no disrespect to um, Ellie Isabit who won the race and is dominating cyclocross at the moment he's leading the World Cup uh, quite handsomely at the moment he's won the Koppenberg Cross three years in a row uh, his big kind of rival at the moment is Toon Arts and they had a real kind of shoulder to shoulder battle for the first third of the men's race um, but it's fair to say that they are the level down from Van der Poel and Van Aert and of course it's uh, not only their brilliance in cyclocross is it it's, it's the crossover to the road which which then um, you know feeds the interest in cyclocross so I would say it was a it was um, you know, about par in terms of the crowd and um the interest and you, you obviously see the big groups of lads drinking beers lots of people slipping over in the mud because of course it's a, a very steep field the one adjacent to the Coppenberg Cross so there's sort of a, a grubby festival party type atmosphere and midway through the men's race there was an absolutely torrential downpour and I have to say people were kind of slipping away at that point not staying for the uh, the end of the race perhaps wisely because when I did um, head back to my car after the race I was parked in the press parking in a in a grassy field and um, had a real eggy few moments thought I was going to get stuck in there or need to be rescued by a, a farmer with a tractor but in the end I slipped slip slided my way down the hill and, and managed to steer my car through a gate next to some cows and onto some tarmac and it was quite a relief <laughs> to get out of that muddy field before all of the the rest of the the, the press pack had uh, had headed back but um i say well my, my sense was that cyclocross does miss uh, van art and van der paul but um the fact that they are going to be back um will, will obviously give it that extra impetus later on in the year and pidcock and pidcock be, too uh, yeah i spoke to him i mean just as a bit of a coda to the to the scurrilous rumour about Bora Hansgrohe, when I spoke to him a few weeks ago at the World Championships about his goals for next year, he was pretty emphatic about the the World Championships, the mountain bike World Championships being his biggest goal. I think. I think it I was, remember. It was just- it was slightly Correctly. suspicious when he when he responded to you in German, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a thick sort of southeastern <laughs> kind of borderline Austrian accent. Yeah, um, no, I th- I'm pretty sure he said the World Championships uh, mountain bike were, were going to be his big goal, but he said that he would be riding some cl- cyclocross in the new year as well. So I, I guess he'll be lining up against 
Run well, just to sort of back up what I was saying, really, and also with a bit of a Pidcock link, the under-23 race was won by Pim Ronhart, a Dutch rider, the under-23 world champion. Uh, but Cameron Mason of Trinity Racing was... Yeah, oh, I've been waiting for this. Initially, the Scottish, the Scottish element. A little bit, uh, there was a little bit of a gap, but Mason really closed it down over the last lap and a half and was closing in on him on the finish, on the final climb up the Koppenberg on the Cobbles. Um, and of course, you know, Mason riding for Trinity Racing, which in its previous guise was Wiggins uh, Pro Team, which Tom Pidcock rode for for a couple of years. Um, Thibaut Nice was uh, third. That's Sven Nice's son, of course, and who's been uh, getting some results on the road. And then there's definitely a sense of the importance of this crossover and everything linking back to the road riders. Because before I spoke to Cameron Mason, um, he was talking to uh, one of our Belgian colleagues. And I don't want to exaggerate too much, but about the first five questions were about Tom Pidcock and whether uh, you know Mason had his eyes on following Pidcock onto the road. Because it, it just all feeds into that, I think, for... Um, you know the mainstream public and even the, the cycling press and public uh, over in Belgium but I spoke to Cameron Mason who Richard is from Linlithgow in Scotland have I said that correctly uh, between you Edinburgh have, and Glasgow and uh, the venue for the West Clarion Cycle Sounds like, is, that near, is, is that near Heart Hill Richard sounds like it might be near Heart Hill well not 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 too far away I guess it's West Lothian um, it's not 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 a million miles away from your ancestral roots Daniel but I think, isn't a corner at the new West Lothian cycle circuit going to be named after you, Richard? Yes. No, 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 no. I <laughs> agreed to that too quickly. Um, did, actually, we raised money for the West Lothian cycle circuit a couple of years ago through the sales of cups. And I got an update on that very recently. Let, let, will we hear from Cameron Mason while I look up that update? There's a bit of a power vacuum at the moment that uh, Van Aert, Van Der Poel and Pidcock yeah. uh, have kind of left. But, I mean, that means that the young up-and-coming riders, as we've seen the world champion winning here today, yeah. your result... I mean, talk about your weekend, because ninth in the Elite World Cup yesterday, I think yeah. it was, and second today on one of the most famous hills in Belgian cycling. Yeah, I mean, to do this ride on, on this weekend with yesterday's famous race and today, like... Yeah, it's probably, if I was to pick one weekend that I was to be 100%, it would be this weekend. And after last weekend in uh, in Zonhoven where I rode 17th, I was like, hmm, it's a good start. And I know next weekend is only going to suit me better. So going into yesterday, oh, I had a terrible start. I was like second to last into the first corner. And I, at that point, I was thinking, oh, like, let's just ride a recovery race. Let's just like ride a time trial, take pick off riders. And then three laps in, I was already in the top 20. So it was like, it was just picking off riders. And I think I prefer to race from the back. I can like see where all the riders are. When they make mistakes, I can just slide through. And on a course like yesterday, as soon as you like force it, you make mistakes. So I was just like trying to relax. It's the same today. Like if you fight the bike, you really, you're just going to go backwards. Because today, like, wow. It felt like, even though it was like 50 minutes long, it felt like one of the longest races ever. Like, just the, oh, every time you come to that climb and you know that it's one massive effort just to ride it, just to keep moving. And one time I unclipped halfway up the climb and I was like, I'm done. Like, there's, I, I, I had no idea how I was going to get going again. But yeah, I managed to clip in and, and keep riding to the top. But yeah, in the mud in Koppenberg, for, to even just finish is yeah is an achievement I think. 
how much of a run into the first climb do you get because it's already breaking up as soon yeah. as it hits the bottom of the climb yeah so on the first lap there's like a couple of hundred meters on tarmac and then you hit the cobbles and it just ramps ramps and then when you join where the course has come from the right it's just all mud so all the mud on the cobbles uh, so i think at that point i was like fifth tenth position and already one guy had to get off and run uh, and uh, I could just hear behind me that the carnage I'm, I was like the last rider to get through uh, so I can't imagine running up there in uh, we all have like toe studs on our shoes and you just can't run you're just like like Bambi like running up wet cobbles uh, although I can't imagine doing it in wet road cycling cleats that's something different but today uh, I think uh, five times up that in the mud is, is yeah tough your specialty is more cyclocross mountain biking or your preference maybe how do you see the next two three years of your career what direction are you aiming in uh i don't know like well i'm not very good at planning ahead normally i just kind of do what what is fun in the moment so for me that's cyclocross and i broke my arm quite badly in in april um which meant that i couldn't race mountain bike all summer so the reason I did more road racing was because I wasn't still like my arm is maybe 80-90% strong uh, around the elbow so yeah the road racing opportunities I did take this year with national champs it's opened my eyes up to to that because before I always thought it was I was too busy to like try and do the road and it's as you know like it's so multifaceted like with tactics and all this and different type of parkers whereas if you go to a mountain bike race you do your job you go 100% and then go home whereas I see road is a bit more complex in a good way but then also a bad way because you need to the experiences yeah I'm so bad at holding a wheel and like as, and soon, as soon as we go into the winds I just get like absolutely shoved in the gutter and, and those little things but even in the like five road races I've done already at national champs i was like yeah top 30 in the finish so it shows i can learn quickly so maybe i next year i would like to do some stage racing i think that could really add to me as a rider um in yeah just the, that depth and knowledge is it also the different mental intensity of road racing i mean lots of periods of time where on the face of it not much is happening but you've just got to be switched on and concentrated but at a sort of lower intensity it's not quite as you know full-on um you know as, as not much of a sensory experience as a cyclocross is maybe exactly like today like i'm used to riding 100 percent all the time basically like my heart rate is 190 beats like for the whole time and it never recovers whereas in the bunch in my first few races i'd be riding along and it would be easy but my heart rate would still be super high because i'm like looking around like oh like are there splits going all this stuff but what you i need to learn is that you can just sometimes you need to really relax and then sometimes you need to really turn it on and it's that like polarized kind of racing that i think i can it suits me because of how on off the mountain bike and the cyclocross is but mentally just learning to relax when you can relax and then really go hard when you need to does uh, seeing the Koppenberg and riding a bit around this region I mean does it open your eyes a bit to the, the the history and the romance of the Tour of Flanders I mean this is a sort of I don't know the Hamden Park of, uh, of, of European cycling in a way yeah so when I came to Belgium the first time a few years ago I was like within a week I was like I can see why there are strong riders around here because it is grim it is not a nice place to ride a bike and well, I mean I only know it really in the winter so uh, I just can't see how like why is cycling the national sport here when the roads are so terrible sometimes and the wind is so horrible but 
yeah, it makes strong riders. You know how to ride in the wind and you know how to ride on the cobbles. Uh, although I avoid them every single time when we're training because we like, if you see a, a cobbled rider, like, nah, not today. We'll save that for the racing. Uh, and I, I think the pros do that as well. They must like, if you ride past the Koppenberg on a training ride, like why would you, why would you go up it, suffer up it? Um, but yeah, like we only do like a short section of the Koppenberg really today. We do the, the hardest bit. But to come into that, like, yeah, 190 deep, kilometers deep, wow, yeah. And then it's always the push on after, I think, as well, which is, yeah, we don't really have in the cyclocross, but, yeah, imagine Alaphilippe at the front just, like, shoving it in the gutter in his big ring and just, like, doing a map. Well, no thank you. <laughs> well, that was Cameron Mason there. I have to say the best race of the day was the women's race, uh, a really close battle between Clara Honsinger of uh, the USA, the American champion. She was the eventual winner, and Denise Betsimer, uh, who has been a feature in the World Cups so far this season. Um, the race itself was renamed the, the Grand Prix Julien Verschuren after the 2015 and 16 winner who died from a brain tumour in July and uh, there was a little presentation um, for her as well at the finish. But that was a, a really, a really good race. Um, it probably had the worst of the conditions really because... Uh, there's all the junior races, the under-23 race. The cobbles were extremely muddy by that stage. And then the, where, by the time the men uh, started racing, the, the rain had washed a little bit of the surface mud off. But uh, yeah, proper Belgian cyclocross conditions. And the frites and mayonnaise were very good as well. So all in all, uh, a great little trip if uh, people can make it over to one of the cyclocross events in Belgium or the Netherlands for a little trip, COVID restrictions uh, notwithstanding, it's uh, a really worthwhile thing to do if cyclocross is your thing. During the World Championships in Belgium a few weeks ago, I did a bit of investigation as to why Belgians have this affinity for frites, for chips, and they claim to have invented them. Did you know this? So, and this goes back, we mentioned the Meuse River and Fleshwell on earlier in the episode. Well, um, the story, one version of how chips were invented goes back a few centuries and the story goes that one year the Meuse River froze over and uh, the local inhabitants could no longer fry fish that they would take from the Meuse. So they started frying little batons of potato instead. Wow. Well, well, well. Um, speaking of inventing foodstuffs, uh, something we forgot to mention in the news roundup was the, the very sad tiramisu news, Daniel. Well, yes, the inventor of tiramisu. Um, this podcast has covered the origins of tiramisu in some detail, and this dates back to our visit to Le Beccherie in Treviso, Lionel, a couple of years ago, three years ago, the 2018 Giro d'Italia Le Beccherie run by the Campeol family, um, has been for generations, and they are widely credited with inventing tiramisu, although there is another location in Tolmezzo in Friuli, who, which also lays claim to having invented tiramisu. But the Campeol family, unfortunately, is grieving this week because Ador Campeol, the inventor himself um, of tiramisu, died a few days ago. Um, he was 93 years old, and um, well, as we as we mentioned at the time, it's actually quite a recent invention. This it supposedly goes back to I think the 1960s. And Ador one day was trying to make some ice cream, vanilla ice cream, and some mascarpone. Ended up well finding itself into the mix, and he froze the resulting 
mixture and um, tiramisu was born. He had a, he sort of experimented with some cacao powder and as covered by his famously at the time Lionel, no alcohol in tiramisu. A lot of people think there should be, but there was none in the original recipe. We tasted it and it was fantastic. But no doubt Le Becheria in Treviso will continue to serve um, tiramisu and um, continue Ado Campiol's legacy. Well, if you live to 93, it's a great advert for the health properties of tiramisu. I might go and get stuck into some a bit later on today as part of my my healthy regime. Um, I promise you a little update on the West Lothian Cycle Circuit, which we raised money for a couple of years ago. They just received a big boost. Matt Ball uh, emailed to tell me they got £636,000 from Sports Scotland. So they've now raised £1.2 and building work is projected to start in March 22, which is great news. So well done, very very well done to them um, and everybody involved in that campaign. Um, slow radio, chaps. It is the off-season. We're looking for your slow radio submissions. Um, email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Um, let's play one from our, our good friend, Alistair Lloyd-Jones, who's been helping us a lot this year on the, the marketing and the social media side of the podcast. He was recently in Mallorca and sent us this. Thanks for that, Alistair. That was wonderful. Really transported me to a warm summer's day in Mallorca. And I think you were coming down Sawyer at the time when you recorded that. And uh, thanks very much for all your help this year as well. It's been much appreciated. Um, any other business this week, chaps? Um, I, I just wanted to mention quickly the Ghent Six because that's another of your winter winter loves, Lionel. That returns next week. Um, I gather... I gather it'll be a full audience. It's going to be it's going to be pretty much as as normal. The Ghent Six um, Corrections Corner. It's actually the following week, isn't it? It's the fifteenth. I'm racing ahead of myself there, Richard. Earlier on in the news roundup, the Ghent Six actually starts on the seventeenth of November, runs until the twenty second, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's coming up soon, and it's uh, that's another great trip to make. Um, the 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 little track there, the Kuipka track, is a tight, intimate venue. Um, uh, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, it's not. It's it's the sort of place that uh, the atmosphere can get quite dense in there in the evenings when the track centre is packed in uh, post-COVID times, or well, it's not really post-COVID times, is it? It was still living through COVID. It will be. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what sort of measures they have in place. They do say on their website that, uh, like a lot of events, you have to. 
uh, be double vaccinated or have a certificate of recovery or a negative PCR test two days before uh, going to the event. And uh, certainly those things were checked when I went to the Belgian football match. Well, I'm looking forward to, to that. Um, it's always a great event. Um, and well, we'll we'll return next week. Uh, before that, we've also got another episode of the second podcast, Femina. That will uh, that will come out um, probably Friday. It's had to be um, rejigged because there's been some exciting news concerning uh, one of our presenters. You might be able to guess what it is. So it's a bit of a makeshift lineup for the second podcast, Femina. We'll 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 announce that exciting news in the episode, and um, that should be out on Friday. If not Friday, then Saturday. Um, and we'll return next week with another regular episode. In the meantime, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you, Lionel. Thanks, chaps. You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast with Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib, and Richard Moore. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Will Jones. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.